like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as we make our way through this letter penned by the Apostle Paul in the mid-50s AD, we come to chapter 10. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 14. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these, now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that these things were written for our sake upon those upon whom the end of the ages has come. And so, Lord, we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Oh, beloved Lord, it has been said that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And as we consider this statement, it's interesting to note that the most important thing we can learn from our past are not the successes, are not the achievements, are not the great victories. The most important things we can learn from our history are the failures, the mistakes, the times when, when, the, when things went bad rather than good. And I think we see that same thing when we consider the biblical redemptive history that we find in the Old Testament. Indeed, the Apostle Paul turns our minds back to the Old Testament and shows us that there is an example for us to find there, and it is a decidedly negative example He says these things were written so that we would not follow the negative example of the Israelites. Well, as we consider the context in which our passage lies, the Apostle Paul has been addressing the issue of meat that had been offered to idols. Some of the Corinthians had claimed to possess a certain knowledge that in their minds enabled them to be able to not only eat meat that had been offered to idols, but to eat that meat within the precincts of the pagan temples. 
And Paul first addressed that behavior back in chapter 8 when he said, when, when, he, uh, when he called to mind how that type of behavior would impact others, especially their fellow believers who were weak in conscience and would be easily led astray. But then in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul set forth himself as an example, as one who freely and, and willingly surrendered his rights for the good of others in order to win more for Christ. Like an, like an athlete who exercises self-control in all things, the Apostle Paul did not seek to please himself, but only his Lord. And so having set forth that good example of himself in chapter 9, which he will again uh, commend them at the very end of this section in chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Having set forth that good example in chapter 9, the Apostle Paul now sets forth the bad example, the negative example, as he recalls the history of the Israelites. And so he reminds them in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Here he reminds his readers of the major redemptive act of the Old Testament, namely the Exodus, the time in which the Lord redeemed his people with a mighty outstretched arm, saving them from the bondage of Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. And it's interesting as he reflects upon this biblical history, as he, call, as he recalls to mind the Israelites, look how he refers to them. He calls them our fathers. It's interesting when you consider the fact that Paul, being an ethnic Jew, is writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation, and yet he can call the Israelites of old our fathers. And he's doing that not because, not because he's writing necessarily to Jews or Gentiles, but I think because he's writing to them as new creatures in Christ who comprise the one people of God, both, uh, which are one, both old and new covenant. And Paul's point here is that, is that the Israelites of old were not so different than you or I. He begins to recount the extraordinary events of God's redemptive grace that were experienced by the Israelites. And it's interesting how he says it was experienced by all of them. Did you notice that? In the first four verses, he repeats that word all five times. Every man, woman, and child experienced these events that he describes here. First of all, he talks about the Red Sea crossing, which he likens to a baptism. He says they were baptized in the Red Sea. They were baptized in the cloud. You see, the Red Sea crossing as a type of baptism was a time in which the people passed through the waters of judgment unscathed and arrived safely on the other side. We know Pharaoh and his hosts who attempted to do the same thing were not so lucky. But when we consider the elements of this baptism, it's not only the Red Sea, but it is also the cloud, the glory cloud, which was the visible manifestation of the presence of God. You see, both of those things, the cloud as well as the Red Sea, those were the elements through which the Israelites passed, under which they passed in order to receive this baptism. And those two things, the cloud and the Red Sea, were what distinguished, differentiated them, the people of God, from Pharaoh and his hosts. You may recall that cloud came down and, and created a barrier which allowed the Israelites to, to pass safely through. And then, of course, the waters covered Pharaoh and his hosts, uh, putting them to death, but saving 
the Israelites. You notice in this baptism, the only people who get wet are the enemies of God. Likewise, in our baptism, the one who is buried is our old man. The one who is made alive is the new man, who we are in Christ. It's also interesting to note that this baptism was into Moses. Here, Moses being the mediator of the Old Covenant, it's, uh, uh, the Israelites were re- received their new identity in his name. So they were baptized into Moses in the same way that we as New Covenant believers are baptized into Christ, the better mediator of the better covenant. Well, not only did the Israelites receive the spiritual benefits of baptism, they were also fed and sustained with spiritual food and drink in the wilderness. Here is a very clear allusion to the Lord's Supper. And so the Apostle Paul says the Israelites received baptism. They received the benefits that we receive in the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, because they ate spiritual food. Of course, Paul's referring to the manna, which would appear uh, on, on the desert floor every morning except for the Sabbath morning. And when it first appeared, the Israelites said, Mana, what is this? The name stuck. But you see, this, this food, this bread from heaven, as Psalm 105 refers to it, was the way in which the Israelites were fed and sustained throughout their 40 years in the wilderness. Not only did they receive the spiritual food, they got the spiritual drink. They were able to drink from that rock. This, of course, we read of in Exodus chapter 17 as the Israelites are making their way to Mount Sinai and they are thirsting in the wilderness. The Lord tells Moses to strike the rock. And he strikes that rock and a river flows from it, from which the Israelites are able to drink. And although this it was physical manna, physical bread, which filled their stomach and physical water, which assuaged their physical thirst. It's interesting that Paul calls both of these spiritual. And I think that S for spiritual should be capitalized because it refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not ethereal. It was real bread. It was real drink. But it's spiritual, first of all, because it was brought through the power and operation of the Holy Spirit, but also spiritual because the physical sign pointed to a spiritual reality. The physical sign of manna and the water from the rock pointed to a spiritual reality. What is that reality, we might ask? Well, Paul tells us in verse 4. It's Christ and all of his benefits. He even goes right out and says that rock was Christ. We might ask, well, wait a minute, Paul. When you say the rock was Christ, are you saying that Christ is this inanimate object made out of minerals? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is speaking in what we might call sacramental language. That is, the sign is so closely related to the thing it signifies, the spiritual reality, that we can change the names. We can use one name for the other. In the same way that Jesus could hold up bread and say, this is my body, Paul could say that rock was Christ. And because the rock which gave them life, living water in the wilderness, was a sign of Christ's presence with his people, Paul could say that rock followed them. That rock followed them. Of course, we know that Christ was there present during the Exodus in the the, uh, operation of the angel of the Lord. As As the Lord told Moses, my angel will go before you. Listen to him. His name is in me. The angel of the Lord, the one who spoke for the Lord, but also was the Lord, 
was, of course, the work of the pre-incarnate Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul says that that rock followed them, we shouldn't think of this rock sort of tagging along in the wilderness. Wait up, guys, as they go around in the 40 years. But remember that the Israelites drank from the rock on more than one occasion. Of course, they drank from the rock at the very, very beginning of their wilderness journey at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 17. But recall that they also drank from the rock towards the end of their wilderness journey in Numbers chapter 20. That's the time when Moses struck the rock the second time when he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to just speak to the rock. But he struck it because he was angry. But because the Israelites drank from the rock at the beginning and the end of their wilderness journey, we can say, in a sense, that that rock accompanied them. So it wasn't the physical rock that accompanied them, but the spiritual rock, who is Christ himself, who never left nor forsook his people. And so here we see the Apostle Paul likening the Israelites of old to new covenant believers, as he said, that all of the Israelites received the spiritual benefits of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're no different than you or I. And yet, we get the turning point in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Despite all of the spiritual blessings that came upon all the people, men, women, and children, Despite all that they experienced throughout the Exodus, the vast majority of them did not find God's favor, nor did they enter his rest because of their sin and unbelief. This is the same point that the author to the Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 3, as he says they failed to enter that rest because they didn't have faith. And as tangible proof of God's wrath and displeasure upon his people, we get that vivid imagery of their bodies being scattered in the wilderness as the NIV translates verse 5. As a matter of fact, the only two of that first generation who were over the age of 20 who entered the land of promise were Joshua and Caleb. Now, Paul says that these things happened as examples for us, literally as types for us as new covenant believers. And again, these are negative types, negative examples, so that we would not follow in their footsteps. We see the same thing commended in Psalm 78, a historical psalm, which recounts Israel's repeated failures despite God's faithfulness. We read in Psalm 78 that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so what are some of the negative examples? What are some of the things that we should avoid that the Israelites fell into. Well, Paul gives four examples. The first is in verse 7, when he says, do not be idolaters. Here the Apostle Paul is referring to the golden calf episode that we read in Exodus 32. And it's a fitting place to start because it happens so early in the wilderness journey. Before Moses could even make it down the mountain, before he could present the two tablets of stone, the Israelites begin to grow weary and impatient. And they say, this Moses, we don't know where he's gone. Let's just move on without him. Let's make our own God and start off on this journey. And so what do they do? Well, they get Aaron to make a golden calf and they begin to worship this calf. And, and, and Paul quotes from Exodus 32 when he says that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
describing their pagan worship that they're uh, getting, uh, that they're involving themselves in. Of course, this could also accurately describe what would happen in the Corinthian temples. In those pagan temples, people would sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play. And that type of play, of course, is a euphemism for sexual immorality. We see that idolatry and sexual immorality always go hand in hand, as is the case in Paul's second example in verse 8 when he says, do not engage in sexual immorality. Here he's referring to the time in which the Israelites yoked themselves to Baal of Peor in Numbers chapter 25. As the Moabite women would go into the camp and the men would take those women and, and worship this fertility god. Engaging in not only idolatry, but also sexual immorality. And as a result, God sent his wrath. Paul says that 23,000 fell in a single day. If you go back in your own time and read Numbers Numbers chapter 25, you'll actually see that the number there given is 24,000. A lot of people have come up with suggestions how we might be able to reconcile the fact that Numbers says 24,000 and Paul says 23,000, perhaps the best is given by Calvin in his commentary where he says Paul gives the low number, Moses gives the high number. They rounded off and it was probably somewhere in the middle. <coughs> Yet despite that, or regardless of the exact number that fell, it's an astonishingly, astonishingly high number of people. We see here the severity of God's judgment coming upon them because Not only idolatry, but also the sexual immorality. Third example is in verse 9 when he says we ought not to put Christ to the test. Paul is referring here to the episode we read of in Numbers 21 when the people once again grew impatient and began to complain about the manna. They were sick and tired of manna every single day. Manna tacos, manna burritos, manna cotta, everything. They're sick and tired of having manna. Why don't you just give us something else? I wish we were in Egypt. We could have, you know, the wonderful food that they had there. Well, they put Christ to the test. And in response and complaining about God's provisions, he sent fiery serpents that would bite the people. And that bite would prove fatal. It's interesting how Paul describes this in verse 9. He says they put Christ to the test. Now, it's true that in some manuscripts, they substitute the word Christ for Lord, or even others substitute the word God. But Christ is likely the original reading. Keep in mind, Paul said that Christ was with them. He followed them throughout their wilderness journeys in verse 4. And if indeed that is the case, if it was Christ himself that they put to the test in complaining, Ironically, the very one who was tested and provoked also became the symbol of salvation. As you may recall that story, as the people began to cry out to the Lord, having uh, been attacked by these fiery serpents, the Lord told Moses to build, to construct a bronze serpent and to lift that serpent up in the wilderness. And whoever looked upon that serpent would be saved. Of course, Christ in John chapter 3 says that serpent was me. That serpent pointed forward to me. Well, for Paul's final example of Israel's sin and rebellion, which we find in verse 10, when he says, nor ought we to grumble, it's a little hard to place, since there were so many instances in which the Israelites grumbled against the Lord throughout their wilderness wanderings. 
But since Paul started his examples with the golden calf episode that took place at the beginning of their journey as they set out, perhaps here he's alluding to the time in which the Israelites were on the very verge of entering the land of Canaan, that is the rebellion in Numbers chapter 14. You know the story. As they get to the verge of the land of Canaan, they send in 12 spies. And 10 of those spies come back and they say, no way. We can't do it. The Canaanites are too big. They're too mighty. There's no way we can go in there. And of course, there was the minority report, the two spies who gave the positive report, Caleb and Joshua, saying we ought to believe in the Lord. We can possess this land if we have faith in him. Well, the Israelites refused to believe that positive report brought by Joshua and Caleb, and they decided to choose their own leader, rejecting Moses, and to head back to Egypt. And in response, the Lord said to Moses in Numbers chapter 14, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. If it wasn't for the mediation and intercession of Moses, the Lord would have rejected his people who rejected him and started over with Moses himself. And yet as we consider all of these negative examples, and of course we can multiply them. If you go back and you read the book of Numbers, it's this repeated history of God's faithfulness in Israel's failures. And yet we ought to keep in mind, as Paul says in verse 11, that these patterns of sin and rebellion not only became telltale warnings for Israel throughout their history, as we see in Psalm 78 or Psalm 106. They would sing of their history and sing about the failure of their fathers and pray that they wouldn't repeat the same pattern. And yet Paul tells us that these things were specifically written in Holy Scripture, not for them, but for us as New Covenant believers, as those upon whom the end of the ages has come. For those of us who live in light of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, living after those things, the fullness of the revelation in Jesus Christ, these things are written for us. And yet we ought to keep in mind with greater experience and with greater light and greater revelation comes greater responsibility. As the author to the Hebrews says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? You see, we who know the end of the story should be able to look at these uh, Old Testament examples and take them to heart. And that's why Paul then applies his message in verse 12. Therefore, take heed. Watch yourself. You see, the Corinthians were complacent and puffed up in their so-called knowledge. As baptized members of the covenant community, they felt secure despite their overtly sinful acts. Despite the fact that they are tolerating gross sexual immorality in chapter 5 despite the fact that others felt that they could frequent with prostitutes, or the fact that in verse 
or chapter 8, others thought that they could go into the pagan temples and eat there. Paul says, watch out. Watch yourselves. If you think you stand, take heed, lest you fall. He goes on to describe those temptations that they were facing, whether it be the temptation to sexual immorality or the temptation to idolatry or the temptation for covetousness or materialism. And Paul says there is nothing, there's no temptation that you can face that is not common to man. See, I think it's our tendency to think that our present trials and temptation are unique. That no one else has ever faced this unique type of temptation that we have been in. No one has faced what we have had to go through. And yet Paul corrects that view. The same thing that the, the same temptations that the Israelites faced in the wilderness were the same temptations that were being faced by the Corinthians are the same temptations that are being faced by us today in 21st century America. There's no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. Another thing we need to keep in mind in the midst of temptation is Paul's uh, clear affirmation that God is faithful. This is unchanging. God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And while God himself does not tempt us, as James tells us in James 1.13, he allows us to be tempted in order to test our faith. So he's not trying to trip us up, but he's trying to build us up. As we undergo trials and temptations, the Lord puts us through the test to see if we would rely upon him. And Paul tells us that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond our control. So sin is not inevitable. With every temptation, Paul says, we have a way of escape. And we need to be careful to not misapply this verse and think that we can get ourselves into any and every situation and somehow think that we can get away with it. Paul's not telling us that. We need to consider what he says here with what he says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. The Corinthians shouldn't think, oh, well, this is great. Now I can go to the pagan temples and know I got a way of escape. There's always an exit out the back door. No, Paul says you need to use wisdom. Sin is is not inevitable, but we need to use wisdom and we need to identify that way of escape. Sometimes it's before you even go in the front door. And so that's why he then applies it in verse 14. Again, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We're not to toy with it. We're not to see how close we can get to it without getting burned. In the same way that he said back in chapter 8, flee sexual immorality. He says here, flee from idolatry. Don't even think about it. Don't even get close to it, the Apostle Paul says. Well, Paul will go on to talk about the severity and significance of eating at the, at the table of idols. As, as he goes on to say, it's actually the table of demons that you are eating at. As he somberly warns his audience. But as we conclude our passage today, as we consider Israel's negative example that they set in the wilderness, we need to be reminded of the fact that where Israel failed, Christ prevailed. 
Christ withstood temptations that were above and beyond anything that was common to man. He faced unique temptations. And yet he constantly went back to the word of God. And he remained faithful throughout all of his trials. And he did that for us and for our salvation. And so that where we failed, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And his sacrificial death washes away our sins. And even now, as we stand in, this, in the light of his life, death, and resurrection, as we as new covenant believers are united together with him, keep in mind that when we face temptations, we do that in Christ. And it is, it is only through him and through the power of his spirit that we are able to stand in the midst of all these trials. May God grant to us grace and hearts full of gratitude for all that Christ has done. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that when you were led into the wilderness, when you had fasted 40 days and were hungry, you did not give in to the trials and temptations that Satan brought your way. We thank you that where Israel failed, where Adam failed, where indeed all of us individually have failed, You have prevailed, and you were obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Thank you that we have the the benefits of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of your righteousness. We also have the gift of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not rely upon our own strength, but rather that we would rely upon you. And as we face temptations, O Lord, we pray that we would turn away and turn to you in faith. And we ask this in your name. Amen.